Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a constant balancing act. It's everything from how you dress and, you know, what your hairstyle is to how loudly you speak or how loudly you laugh or, you know, who you are seen with or, I mean, it's just a constant judgment. Hillary Rodham Clinton's had a complicated relationship with the public. It started in the 1970s when she challenged the cookie-cutter role laid out for her as First Lady of Arkansas. The thought occurs to me that you really don't fit the image that we have created for the governor's wife in Arkansas. You're not a native. Um, you've been educated in liberal Eastern universities. You're less than 40. You don't have any children. You don't use your husband's name. You practice law. Does it concern you that maybe other people feel that you don't fit the image that we have created for the governor's wife in Arkansas? No, um, that doesn't bother me. Um, and I hope that it doesn't bother uh, very many people. But it did bother many people. Hillary being Hillary made people uncomfortable. And so, one by one, her critics started asking her to change herself. 
Despite all her extraordinary accomplishments, including senator, secretary of state, first woman to be nominated for president by a major political party, and I mean she even won the popular vote in the 2016 election, despite all of that, people kept at it. They wanted Hillary to be different, for her to change. And she was willing to change, just never in the way that people had hoped. I'm Maya Shankar, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show that dives deep into the world of change and hopefully gets us to think differently about change in our own lives. Hi, how are you? Hi. <laughs> it's great to meet you, Secretary Clinton. I just wanted to welcome you formally to my closet. Yes. Um, I, I always dreamed it would be this way. You know, the first time I met Hillary Clinton, it would be from my makeshift recording studio with clothes everywhere. Uh, but I guess this is the world we live in right now. <laughs> it is the world we live in. I have been um, privy to many closets over the last year yes. because as I've been doing my podcast and talking with friends on Zoom and everything. People are in closets. They're in corners of their bedroom. They're in kitchens. I mean, it's just been quite a tour of everybody's living space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get, an, you get an intimate glimpse into people's yes, lives. Exactly. So I'm just going to jump in. Do you mind if I call you Hillary? Not at all. Okay. Not at you. all. Uh, so I'd love to rewind the clock to your 20s. Um, if we can take the little time machine back in time. Mm -hmm. um, so you're a lawyer in D.C. You've just wrapped up your work on the Nixon impeachment hearings. And then love gets in the way. And you end up <laughs> moving uh, to Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And um, Bill becomes governor. And mm -hmm. you are not the typical first lady. Hmm, uh, right. And that's met with some resistance, right? Do you mind sharing mm -hmm. what it was that people were taking issue with? Well, I think that... Back in what would have been uh, the 1970s, it was still you know, somewhat unusual to have graduated from law school to be teaching law or practicing law. I did both. Uh, and I really saw that, but I didn't think it would impede me in any way. And then when I married Bill in 1975, you know, I determined that I would keep my own name, which seemed to me to make a lot of sense because that's what I had written under at, uh, at law school. That's what I had practiced law under, taught, et cetera. And I think it was um, really at the point that our daughter was born in uh, – uh, February of 1980, and Bill was having to run for re-election because there were only two-year terms for governors back then. And the front page announcement was Governor Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham, you know, announced the birth of their daughter, Chelsea. It was probably that moment that really pierced people's public consciousness that, oh my gosh, she has a different name. And then that became a really big issue. And so when Bill lost for re-election in 1980 in the Reagan landslide, uh, among the top reasons people said that they didn't vote for him was because I didn't take his last name mm -hmm. or change my name, as they would say. And it was a, a truly 
um, surprising revelation to me that that would matter so much to people. But now it frankly wouldn't make that big a difference to anybody, but it was significant. And I had so many people come to me and say, uh, you really have to take your husband's last name. You're really stopping him from being able to run again and be governor again. And there's a lot at stake with him being governor. And the one person who never asked me to do that was my husband. Uh, He thought it was pretty ridiculous also. But I concluded that it was, you know, for me, um, uh, something that I was willing to do. And I made an announcement that I would be Hillary Rodham Clinton. And uh, obviously, it went against what I thought was my decision. But I balanced all of the pros and cons and decided that on balance, it was the right thing for me to do. Yeah, I think a lot of people, women especially, face this same kind of tension, which is knowing when it makes sense to compromise, right? Mm-hmm. Do I mm-hmm. do I take a principled stance at every turn, but then risk getting kicked out of the arena altogether and then lose mm-hmm. my ability to have impact? Or mm-hmm. do I try to more thoughtfully pick my battles and mm-hmm. stay in the arena and just play the longer game? Well, that's exactly right. I was not going to stop practicing law. I was not going to stop being outspoken about a lot of issues that really mattered to me. And when Bill was reelected in 1982, um, I dove back in uh, and uh, chaired a task force to reform education in the state. And it was, I'm sure, easier for some people to hear the changes I was uh, advocating for because I was all of a sudden uh, truly understood to be the governor's wife. <laughs> so it it is a constant balancing act. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that's true for all people, but I think you're right to say that as women, we make those decisions constantly. Uh, and it's everything from how you dress and you know what your hairstyle is to how loudly you speak or how loudly you laugh or you know who you are seen with or i mean it's just a constant judgment mm. both internally you're judging yourself but most uh importantly how you're being judged because there continues to be a rather uh active double standard mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some really telling footage from back in the day where you're getting interviewed about your role as first lady and underneath your face, it says Hillary Rodham. And underneath mm-hmm. that, in parentheses, it says Mrs. Bill Clinton. I mean, right. I just laughed out loud, right? right? But yeah. I'm part of mm-hmm. a different generation where yes. it just seems mm-hmm. like, of course, I'm going to keep my last name. But mm-hmm. I recognize that at the time, that was a truly bold uh, feminist statement. Um, so yeah. I want to dig into that mm-hmm. a little bit more, which is when you did first marry Bill, um, mm-hmm. what what fueled your decision to keep your last name? I was just, um, you know, feeling like he was going into politics uh, and he would have a very public life. At that time, I never thought I would personally run for office, but I thought I would stay as an advocate. Um, I'd been, you know, working for the Children's Defense Fund. I'd been a lawyer on the impeachment inquiry staff. I'd had really fascinating, important jobs um, Mm. for me. And I wanted my professional life to be considered separate from his. And I'll tell you a funny story. Before I took his last name, I was... um, 
helping on a big lawsuit in my law firm with one of the senior partners. And we went to trial and we went to trial in this rural county outside of Little Rock. And uh, the judge was at that time under investigation. And the um, office investigating him was the attorney general's office headed by my husband. So we were in the courtroom and this was the kind of judge back in the day who would say how pretty I looked and ask me to stand up and uh, twirl around to show everybody what a you know pretty dress I was wearing, on and on. We made our case and we moved to be dismissed from the case and we were successful. So we get back to our office and the next day the senior partner calls me in and he said, well, I'm sure glad we got dismissed yesterday because on one of the breaks, the judge was cursing out your husband, talking about how terrible the attorney general was to be investigating him. So one of the other lawyers said, well, you know, Your Honor, uh, that young woman that was in the courtroom, that's Bill Clinton's wife. And the judge said, well, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have dismissed the case against her client. Now, that to me encapsulated, you know, the challenge of being married to a public figure, but being very committed to my own professional Mm -hmm. uh, career. I mean, I I love that Bill never asked you to change your name. So when you finally finally took the plunge, Mm -hmm. uh, what did he say to you? Was he kind of like, thanks, but... Yeah, yeah. He basically said, look, you know, I I wish you wouldn't have to do this. I wish you didn't think you had to do it. Please don't do it for me. And, you know, he said everything the right thing. But he also encountered from a lot of, you know, his male supporters... You know, men who would say, you know, Bill, I always thought of you uh, as a really, you know, strong guy. And how come you don't make your wife take, you know, take your name? I mean, it was such a flashpoint. And Mm -hmm. it it was, you know, something that I guess both of us should have predicted. Now we would be, you know, just laughing at it. But look at what they make big issues out of today. Mm -hmm. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that anything which touches a cultural uh, hot point is going to uh, provoke a reaction. Mm. Do you remember the first time you introduced yourself as Hillary Clinton? Oh, sure. I I did a press conference. I mean, you know, I was at an event and I said, look, I, I know this means a lot to a number of people, mm-hmm. and I don't want their concern about, you know, my last name to interfere with doing what's right for the state and making some tough decisions. So from now on, I will be uh, known as Hillary Rodham Clinton. Mm-hmm. I just did it very matter of fact. I didn't make a big deal out of it. And, um, you know, I assumed that, okay, now you can argue about me about other things. <laughs> Why, why is she still working? Why Why is she, you know, telling people to raise their taxes to pay for teachers? What is she doing? Yeah. And then later, why is she fighting for health care in the, you know, when Bill was president? And so fine. If, you, if, if this gets you to focus on what I actually think is important, and that is how we're going to live together, make tough decisions mm-hmm. together, uh, let's do that. It's interesting. I mean, there was an element of a, a slippery slope, which is you change your name, it's met with positive reception. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, but what about your hair and yeah. your glasses and yeah. your makeup? Yeah. And can we get you a stylist? I- I'm curious yeah. to know whether changing any of these parts of yourself ever affected your self-perception. 
You know, I I never thought any of it affected my um, self-perception or my identity. And there were parts that I ended up enjoying. You know, I, I finally got around to forcing myself to wear contact lenses. You know, it made a big difference in how I could actually see as well as be seen. Uh, I had a lot of fun all of a sudden, you know, thinking, well, you know, I don't have to just wear turtlenecks and 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 baggy vests and and you know skirts and uh, pants or whatever. Um, so yeah, there are parts of it that were interesting that uh, you know maybe I wouldn't have pursued had uh, I not married Bill or had I not ever married anybody. Uh, but I I didn't ever feel like it affected my core as to who I was. Mm. I, I never, and I give my parents credit uh, for this, Maya. I never, I never really felt like uh, anybody was um, damaging me or undermining me or subverting me um, because I just didn't, you know, either respond to that or didn't frankly allow it. So, you know, maybe it's stubbornness, maybe it's just the, you know, strength of, you know, two parents who never told me that there wasn't anything I couldn't do as a woman. Um, and so I I don't feel like any of the sort of small choices, compromises that I made along the way were that significant. I did feel so strong in my own sense of being and purpose. Mm. I think that also caused a reaction. And I think that was hard for people, uh, men and women, uh, to understand. But it's just who I am. Yeah, I I do wonder whether this is so interesting because um, it almost seems like the people of Arkansas wanted you to suffer a bit more from that name change. Like it would have almost felt more satisfying um, if it had been a, a really challenging thing for you. Like maybe they were they were hoping you were going to give them something meaningful uh, to show how much you I, I don't know is the, how how wrong I'd been how yeah it, how, it's like the fact that it was easy in some sense because you're yeah, such a pragmatist yeah. right to change your I last am. name left people feeling like okay she changed the last name but damn it but she didn't do enough yeah we were trying to change her <laughs> and she's not willing to change that's one hundred percent right that's really perceptive Maya. That is exactly right. And this has been a constant theme through my adult life. You know, um, there's something about women stepping into the arena, particularly being unapologetic about it, being um, willing to stand up against or call out uh, strong groups or interest groups or forces at work, whatever, uh, that is in and of itself, still somewhat um, surprising and even uh, not fully acceptable. Uh, and and so I I really did experience that. Um, and I, I think I, I paid a price for it. I mean, I think that, you know, being unapologetically outspoken and willing to uh, challenge conventional wisdom, you know, is discomforting for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Yeah. Did I put up with a lot of stuff? Yeah. Did I put up with a lot of stuff when I ran for office? Yeah. Did I put up with, you know, all kinds of, you know, sexism and misogyny? Uh, absolutely. Some 
I just ignored for, you know, all the reasons that people, women of my age ignored that stuff. Uh, it just wasn't worth the battle. Even in the case of, of Arkansas, you made all these superficial changes to your look and you changed your last name, but it didn't, it didn't do what people were hoping to do, which is to break <laughs> you a little bit, you know, to like yes, expose yes. some deep vulnerabilities. Yes. Um, because what do bullies want? Ultimately, they mm-hmm. want to get a rise out of you. Mm-hmm. They want to see you crack a bit. But you know, it's so inter- this is so interesting to me because in the 2016 campaign, like for example, the famous incident of the second debate where Trump is looming over me, mm. leering at me and trying to intimidate me. And I'm madly going through, what are my options here? Do I turn around and say, back up, you creep? you know, you don't intimidate me. Do I, you know, try to laugh it off? What do I do? How do I deal with what is a clearly uh, signaled effort on his part to his supporters that he's got the little lady in hand? Because he's a master manipulator. And it was hard. And eventually I decided, no, you know, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to either laugh it off or try to, you know, expose it because I don't want people to think I can't take it. I mean, yeah. I'm trying to be president of the United States, for heaven's sake. So this is a highly complicated calculation as a woman. And I probably would guess that women make that calculation dozens of times a day. Yeah, you know, I, I think that this constant critique that you've gotten over the course of your whole life is we don't know the real Hillary Clinton. And I just Mm. wonder in having this conversation if that's a euphemism for we don't accept the real Hillary Clinton. It is. That that is exactly... She is not like me, or she's not like the women that I know, or she's not like what I want a woman to be. You know, I used to laugh when uh, people in the media would say, oh, you know, she yells. Have you ever gone to a rally where any man is running for anything and he doesn't at some point yell? I mean, good grief. Look who I was running against in 2016 and and all of the yelling that went on. But, you know, that's not what we want. So this is one of the areas that is really rich for further research and understanding, Mm -hmm. because how do you communicate about that? You know, you don't want to sound like you're whining. You don't want to sound like you can't take it. You don't want to sound like you're asking for special treatment. But how do you begin to unpack that? We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. When Hillary Clinton moved into the White House after her husband became president, she again challenged the cookie-cutter role laid out for her, this time as First Lady of the United States. Instead of sticking to her ceremonial duties, Hillary was asked by her husband to lead the task force on national health care reform. It was an ambitious role that had never been given to a First Lady before. She said yes, and almost immediately the public criticism began to pour in. You've been under this glaring spotlight, right? It's unimaginable for a lot of people to be under such sustained scrutiny um, for so many decades. And 
it's it's almost like you've had this mirror permanently stationed in front of you that's just been <laughs> reflecting things back in the form of a constructed Hillary, right? I mean, and so I, I, I do wonder, like, obviously, many of the things reflected back to you have been false, have been distorted. Mm-hmm. Um, but was there ever something reflected back to you over the course of your long career that taught you something new about yourself? Yes. And, and you know, I think... Um, I say this often because young people ask me all the time, how do you get into politics? How do you take, you know, all the attacks and everything? And I said, look, I learned to take criticism seriously, but not personally. Mm. And by that, I mean, your critics can uh, teach you things that your friends either won't or don't know to. Um, You have to be careful about where the criticism is coming from, because a lot of times it's not well-meaning, it's not it's not uh, well-intentioned at all. Uh, but you do have to at least understand mm. and try to figure out how best to uh, deal with it. So, with respect to healthcare, um, I you know I learned a lot about the perceptions sh- shaping reality. Um, you know, my view was that we had all these really hardworking, incredibly smart people from all over the country who were coming up with a plan that uh, would make it possible for us to get to universal health care and make it affordable. So, I mean, I, I worked on that uh, very hard to help shape it and then to help present it. But I I really believe that because I was the president's wife, it was hard for a lot of people to accept the um, plan for what it was. And if I had known that going in, I still would have worked really hard on it, but I wouldn't have headed it. Mm. Somebody else would have been the face of it because all I cared about was trying to get it done. And you're taking it on as the first lady of the United States, unpaid, volunteer, but nevertheless in that role. That may just be too much for the body politic to uh, absorb. And what did that teach you about yourself in terms of, you know, where where a specific blind spot was or something that you just needed to learn the hard way? Like, well, I mean, it it was a very big learning curve to be in a position that was totally vicarious. Mm-hmm. You know. Everybody in a White House is there for only one reason. The president wants them there. Mm-hmm. And who who the president marries ends up in the White House, who the president picks as vice president ends up in the White House. All these people end up in the White House. So I didn't have agency in a way that made it my responsibility um, as I did when I became a senator. Mm. I, I do wonder whether learning this lesson um, when you were first lady in the White House and, and recognizing that you maybe didn't love playing the vicarious role ended up fueling your interest in, you know, untethering yourself and, and running for Senate. Was that, was that part of the evolution for you? Yes, it was. And I'll tell you the exact moment that it all came together because I had, as I said, no idea that I would ever actually run for office. And then you know, having um, been in the White House and knowing that it was going to end, you know, trying to think about what I was going to do uh, next was, you know, pretty much on my mind. Uh, 
And after the 1998 midterm elections, when then-Senator Moynihan said he wasn't going to run again, immediately Democrats in New York started calling me, asking me to run. And and I'm, I'm sure some of them thought I would be an excellent senator, but a lot of them thought that um, I was the only person they could think of who was available, who could beat Rudy Giuliani, who was running. <laughs> so, you know, he had been mayor. He was obviously uh, controversial. He was obviously tough and all of that. So, And we hadn't seen anything yet, which is no, really we devastating. Seen anything. Yeah. He, well, he lost, he lost his mind, yeah. I think. I don't know what happened to him. But so people started calling me, members of Congress and others, and I kept saying, no, 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 no. And then... In the spring of 99, I was as first lady in New York City at a high school to promote women's sports. It was like a Title IX event, and there was a new um, documentary coming out uh, about women in sports. And the um, name of the documentary was Dare to Compete. And of course, you know, the New York papers are filled with people trying to get me to run and, and my saying, you know, no, et cetera. And the young woman who introduced me, captain of, you know, basketball team, she introduced me and then she bent over and she whispered in my ear, dare to compete, Mrs. Clinton, dare to compete. I was so astonished by that because, you know, I had spent many years urging women to compete, you know, in sports and academics and science in politics. I'd campaigned for dozens of women running for Congress or governor, whatever election it was. And I suddenly thought to myself, maybe you're afraid to compete. Maybe you are telling people to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. And it was literally at that moment that I took seriously uh, running uh, for the Senate and working through it and trying to be as honest with myself as I could I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And I had no idea uh, whether it would work or not because when you're uh, supporting somebody else, and I'd supported not just my husband, but, you know, hundreds of people, you know, it's always about them. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's about you. And so it was it was a big transition, but it was that, wo- that young woman at that moment that really, uh, I think, um, turned my head around. What do you think you were scared of? I think it was just the unknown. I think it was knowing how hard politics is, because honestly, I'm kind of an expert on that. I thought, you know, I'm just going to be walking into the meat grinder. It's been, you know, a very eventful eight years. I could go teach or write or do all kinds of interesting things. Why do I want to do that? You know, why do I want to subject myself to that? And and remember, I had been burned an effigy (laughs) along with other things. So I knew I was already, again, because of all the stuff I represented as a, I don't know, baby boomer woman who, you know, didn't know her place, I guess. I had been, you know, subjected to so many attacks from Rush Limbaugh and all the people like that. Why did I want to do that? Why? And then I kind of thought, okay, you have been, And you also believe that there's a lot of things we need to do. You've had a front row seat on history. So get out there and try. You never know until you try. Um, So that's what I ended up doing. Yeah, I think it's easy for people to think of you now and say, Hillary Clinton 
came out of the box this way, right? She was she always had the courage <laughs> and bravery to run uh, for these big offices. But, you know, you had to go through your own personal evolution, just like every other person out there. Um, right. What, what right. were some, if, if you don't mind sharing, like what were some insecurities that you had along the way that you had to work through? Oh, my gosh. You know, once you're out there on your own, you're not there to advocate for a program or advocate for a candidate. You know, I think, um, were you going to be any good at it? You know, you go from behind the scenes to the front of the stage. And how are people going to respond to you? And are they going to believe you, listen to you, agree with you? Um, is your personality, is it going to be enough? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of of criticism. And then, you know, you get all of the gendered criticism, like um, – don't wear that color, wear this color, don't wear flat shoes, wear heels, uh, or vice versa, don't let your hair grow, don't let your hair be short. I mean, you. everybody feels like they can critique a woman in the public arena. They don't do that to men, mm-hmm. you know, 99.9% of the time. And I, I had some of the same experience when I practiced law because, you know, there were expectations about what a woman lawyer should look like. So I wasn't totally surprised. But the amount of unsolicited advice that you start to receive and people say things like, you know, uh, learn to talk like, then they always fill in a man's name, like learn to talk like Bill Clinton, learn to talk like Winston Churchill, I remember somebody (laughs) said, you know, all of these kind of, uh, you know, expectations Mm. that are not at all who you are. And, and what you have to do is just learn to be yourself and just be yourself and do the best you can. And then, you know, you'll either be successful or not, but at least you'll be true to yourself. Yeah. I have been pretty much the same person since I was a little girl. And I think your insights into how that rattled a lot of people in terms of what was to be expected but I also think that it still is affecting women across the board in every walk of life. And so you have to, first of all, be at peace with who you are, then try to translate that into the role you're playing in an effective way, whether it's private or personal or public, and just get the most out of uh, every day. If we hadn't talked so much about me, I have a lot of questions for you. I think you're slightly more interesting than me, so I'm glad we spent the time this way. (laughs) It was such a pleasure. Good luck to you. I hope I get to meet you in person. Take care. Yes, I hope so too. All right, take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. See you next week when I'm going to be talking to change expert, Dr. Katie Milkman, about science-based strategies to help you inspire change in your own life. And I was in this seminar and a graph went up, which normally doesn't change your life, but this graph changed my life. The graph just showed a breakdown of how many premature deaths are due to different causes. 
And 40% of premature deaths turn out to be the result of decisions that we can change. Do you have a slight change of plan story that you'd like to share? Leave a message on our change hotline at 917-544-8977. It could just end up on a future episode of this show. That's 917-544-8977. You can follow us on Twitter at SlightChangePod. A Slight Change of Plans is created, co-written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. It's produced and co-written by Mo Laborde. Associate producer is David Jott. Executive producer is Justine Lang. Editor is Jen Guerra. Sound design and mix engineering from Jason Gambrell and Ben Tolliday. Our theme song is I Can Change by Lake Street Dive. Original music for the series by Jason Gambrell. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. To learn more about A Slight Change of Plans and to sign up for our newsletter, visit pushkin.fm. You can follow us at at Pushkin Podcasts on social media. And if you like A Slight Change of Plans, please remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review. It helps get the word out so more people can find the show. To find more Pushkin Podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.